The House and Senate will come back today and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came back on Wednesday and took up two privileged resolutions. First up was HRES 829, a resolution introduced by Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene to censure Minnesota Democrat Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for anti-Semitic activity, sympathizing with terrorist organizations, and leading an insurrection in the U.S. Capitol complex. Democrats countered with a motion to table the resolution, a motion to kill the bill, and that passed by a vote of 222 to 186, with 23 Republicans crossing party lines to vote against censuring their Democrat colleague from Minnesota. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. Then the House took up H.R. 4363, the Legislative Branch Appropriations Act for FY24. That bill passed by a vote of 214 to 197. Then the House took up H. Res. 773, the second privileged resolution. This resolution provides for the expulsion of, George, of Rep. Representative George Santos of New York. It takes a two-thirds majority to expel a member. This expulsion resolution didn't even get a simple majority, let alone a two-thirds majority. It failed by a vote of 179 to 213, with 24 Republicans voting aye and 182 voting nay. Democrats were similarly split. 155 voted aye, while 31 voted nay. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 4821, the Department of the Interior, Environment, and Related Agencies Appropriations Act for FY24. The House considered 10 amendments and passed one of them. Then the House abruptly took a break and voted on H.R. 6126, the Israel Security Supplemental Appropriations Act. That carried by a vote of 226 to 196, with 12 Democrats crossing over and two Republicans abandoning their colleagues to join the minority. Then the House took up and passed H. Res. 798, a resolution condemning support of Hamas, Hezbollah, and other terrorist organizations at institutions of higher education, which may lead to the creation of a hostile environment for Jewish students, faculty, and staff. Then the House went back to consideration of amendments to H.R. 4821, the Department of the Interior, Environment, and Related Agencies Appropriations Bill. The House considered 14 more amendments that evening and adopted three of them. The House punted on the Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development and Related Agencies Appropriations Act because House Republican leaders were not sure they had the votes to pass it, so that had to wait until a later date. On Friday, the House returned to finish consideration of H.R. 4821. Three more amendments were considered, and the House agreed to all three. Then the bill, as, amendment, as amended, was considered, and it passed by a vote of 213 to 203. Six Republicans and 11 Democrats did not vote. Then the House took up another bill under suspension of the rules, and it passed. And then they were done. This week in the House, they'll return today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m., at that time, the House is scheduled to consider six bills under suspension of the rules. Later Monday, the House is scheduled to take up H.R. 4820, the Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development and Related Agencies Appropriations Act for FY24. On Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the House may continue to consider H.R. 4820, the Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development and Related Agencies Appropriations Act for FY24, and also H.R. 4664, the Financial Services and General Government Appropriations Act for FY24. Last week in the Senate, 
The Senate came back on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Matthew James Maddox to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Maryland. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Jack Lew to be U.S. Ambassador to Israel. The vote to confirm Lew was 53 to 43. Then the Senate went back to consideration of H.R. 4366. That's the legislative vehicle for the three appropriations bill minibus that it had been dealing with last week. The Senate considered three amendments and agreed to one of them. On Wednesday, Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul offered an amendment to require a full audit of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System and the Federal Reserve Banks by the Comptroller General of the United States. Senator Paul got 46 votes for that amendment. Then the Senate considered three more amendments, each of which failed, before finally bringing the vote on final passage. The bill passed by a vote of 82 to 15. On Wednesday evening, several Republican senators took to the floor, seeking unanimous consent on a number of military promotions. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville objected to every single request. We'll talk more about that in a moment. On Thursday, the Senate took up three military promotions that had been held up by Tuberville's objection to unanimous consent that they be moved on block. So, in short order, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the promotions of Admiral Lisa M. Franchetti to be Chief of Naval Operations, General David W. Allivan to be Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force, and Christopher J. Mahoney to be the Assistant Commander of the Marine Corps. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return on Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on a motion to invoke cloture on the nomination of Monica M. Bertignoli to be director of the National Institutes of Health. Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I would anticipate votes on the nominations of Kenley Kia Cato to be U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California, Julia E. Kobik to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Massachusetts, and Raman Ernesto Reyes to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York. Now let's talk about Senator Tuberville's hold on military promotions. On Wednesday evening, as I mentioned, a group of Senate Republicans took to the floor of the Senate to try to undo Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's 10-month-long hold on military promotions, which now has about 370 senior military officers stuck in limbo as they wait for the Senate to confirm them to their new posts. For more than four hours, the confrontation ensued, as Senators called for individual confirmation votes on nominee after nominee, 61 in all. Each time, Tuberville objected to the unanimous consent request. Finally, after 11 p.m., the Senate closed down for the night. Let's take a moment to rewind here. On February 16, 2023, the Department of Defense formally announced its new policy, to fund travel and paid time off for service members and their dependents seeking an abortion. For the record, Congress had not authorized the Pentagon to spend its money on this. Senator Tuberville sent repeated letters and warned Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin about the serious repercussions of this new policy. Tuberville claims his warnings were ignored. The Department's authority to fund abortions is governed by 10 U.S.C. 1093, which limits abortions to cases of rape, incest, or pregnancies that threaten the life of the mother. The rules apply to both service members and their dependents. Consequently, the Department of Defense has funded fewer than 20 abortions per year over the last seven years. 
So don't believe the Biden administration when it says this new policy is necessary to prevent a massive drain of female service members. Senator Tuberville is using one of the powers traditionally afforded an individual senator, the power to place a hold on a nominee's confirmation. He is, in effect, announcing in advance his objection to any unanimous consent request to confirm these nominees on block as they normally are. He's trying to slow down the confirmation of military promotions, to send a message to the DOD top brass that he's unhappy with their policy, which he believes violates the long-standing policy of not using taxpayer funding to pay for abortions. Wall Street Journal columnist Kim Strassel wrote about this recently, quote, federal law doesn't authorize these payments, and the Hyde Amendment prohibits the use of federal funds for most abortions. At worst, this is a flagrant violation of statute, another example of the administration evading congressional power and the rule of law. Think of the eviction ban, vaccine mandates, and student loan cancellations. At best, it's an asymmetrical intrusion into Congress's bipartisan annual tradition of hammering out new defense policy, end quote. Nevertheless, we have a problem. Senator Tuberville is targeting for action military officers who didn't have anything to do with making or promoting or executing this new policy. Senator Tuberville can't block the people responsible for this change in policy because they've already been confirmed to their senior positions in the Pentagon hierarchy. If he wants to shoot the next best target, he should consider holding up the confirmation of a new Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy. Senate Republicans have scheduled a special meeting of their conference for Tuesday afternoon to discuss Senator Tuberville's ongoing military promotions hold. Now let's talk about the emergency supplemental. On Thursday evening of last week, the House passed an emergency supplemental spending bill appropriating $14.5 billion for Israel, as requested by the Biden White House. The bill also rescinds $14.5 billion in funds that have already been appropriated to pay for tens of thousands of new IRS employees and uses that IRS money to pay for the Israel assistance. Speaker Johnson forced a hard choice on House Democrats. He created a pivot point on the IRS and forced House Democrats to choose between Israel and the IRS. Twelve Democrats crossed party lines to vote for the Israel aid package, the rest of them have now made themselves vulnerable to campaign attacks that say when push came to shove, they chose to support hiring more IRS employees instead of sending aid to our ally, Israel. By including a funding mechanism in the emergency supplemental, Johnson also violated a precept of emergency spending. That is, he preferred a way to pay for it. That's new to Washington where labeling something emergency means, by definition, that one does not have to identify a funding source. Washington is used to just tacking that stuff onto the national debt. Some Democrats even talked about that, their fear that Johnson's move would set a precedent. God forbid the government should ever actually make a choice about priorities. What would the world come to? Sadly, it's a one-shot deal, and he's taken the shot. The bill won't go any further. Johnson only has a five-seat majority in one chamber, and Republicans are in the minority in the other chamber, and the Democrats control the White House. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer declared the House-passed Israel Emergency Supplemental dead on arrival in the Senate. The White House, for some reason, issued a veto threat. I say, for some reason, because it was obvious from the beginning that the bill would never pass the Senate, so there was no need for a White House veto threat. 
Now the ball is in Schumer's court. He has one thing in his bag of tricks that Speaker Johnson does not have. That is, when it comes to this emergency supplemental funding request, he has the support of his chamber's minority leader, Mitch McConnell. Like Schumer, McConnell wants to pass an emergency supplemental spending bill that funds everything the White House and Senator Schumer want to fund. Aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, aid to Taiwan, aid for the border. The question is, what will the U.S. Senate bill look like? I'm quite sure it will include aid for Ukraine, likely in the $61 billion range the White House requested. It will also include aid for Israel, also likely in the area of what the White House requested, about $14 billion. It will likely include aid for the Indo-Pacific region, that is Taiwan, also in the range of what the White House requested, about $7.5 billion. And it will include funds for the border. But here's where it may get sticky, because I'm not at all sure that it will include money for what the White House wants. Jenny Beth wrote about that funding request last week, and you can find the op-ed in this week's suggested reading. But here's the gist of her argument. What the White House wants is more money to throw after bad policy, and that's the wrong way to go. The White House funding request asks for money to pay for more Border Patrol officers and more asylum officers and more immigration court judge teams. Here's the giveaway. The request for more asylum officers is larger than the request for more Border Patrol officers. What the White House is asking for is funding to process illegal aliens into our country more quickly. It's as if the Biden administration is embarrassed it takes as long as it does to process illegal aliens at the border, and it wants more funding to speed up the intake process. Rather than asking for more money to help interdict illegal crossings or find other ways to deter the surge of illegal immigration at the southern border. Oh, and the White House wants billions of dollars to repay blue state sanctuary cities like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and Denver for the money they've had to shell out to pay for housing and health care and food for the millions of illegal immigrants now firmly ensconced in our blue cities. That's not going to fly in the House at all, of course. I expect that Senate Republicans will at least try to force Senate Democrats to change the border funding section of their version of the emergency supplemental spending bill to include more significant policy changes. Schumer has said this is a non-starter, but if it appears he cannot get to 60 votes without it, maybe he'll change his mind on just how much of a non-starter it really is. So, let's say the Senate puts together its version of an emergency supplemental spending bill, and let's say it gets enough Republican support to break a filibuster. At that point, it probably passes with 75 or 80 votes. And then both houses will have passed an emergency supplemental spending bill. The two bills will look very different. Neither house will have any obligation to take up the bill the other one passed, so we could be looking at a standoff. Meanwhile, the clock will be ticking. Israel will be running short of defensive weaponry. Ukraine will be running short of defensive weaponry. Taiwan will be feeling the pinch, and the border crisis will continue. I would not be surprised to see a discharge petition used in the House to get around this problem. Democrats would take the Senate-passed bill and introduce it, then enter a discharge petition. All the House Democrats would sign it and it would need just five Republican signatures to put it on the floor for a vote. Now, signing a discharge petition that goes against your conference's position is a real red line. It's only done under the most dire of circumstances. But, mark my words, it's a very real possibility in this situation. 
I'm quite sure there are more than five Republicans in the House Republican Conference who want to send more aid to Ukraine as well as aid for Israel. So they'd rather vote on the bill that came out of the Senate than not vote at all. The question is, are they willing to sign a discharge petition to steamroll their speaker? Stay tuned. Now let's go to government spending. Speaker Johnson attended the Senate Republican Conference lunch on Wednesday after spending time in a private meeting with Minority Leader McConnell. At that meeting, according to participants, Johnson said he could not combine Israel funding with Ukraine funding and border security money. He said he just did not have the votes inside his Republican conference to do that. He said he simply had to keep the Israel aid separate from the Ukraine aid. That said, he also told the assembled senators that he supports getting more aid to Ukraine. He also said he was leaning toward a short-term continuing resolution that would keep the government open and funded through January 15. That was seen by some as a concession, since a week ago he was heard talking about a CR that might extend as far as April 15, more than halfway into the new fiscal year. Senate Democrats want to pass an omnibus bill sooner rather than later. So his acknowledgement of a January 15 end date rather than April 15 was seen as good by Senate Democrats. We're now 12 days away from a lapse in government appropriations. No one in either chamber or in either party has introduced or even talked about the details of the next continuing resolution. House Republicans will meet Tuesday to discuss next steps and various options. Now to the Biden crime family saga. Andy McCarthy, a former assistant United States attorney and longtime writer for National Review, opened his most recent piece this way, quote, Would the American people have elected Joe Biden, despite the widespread disdain for then-President Donald Trump, if it had been widely understood that Biden was bought and paid for by the Chinese communist regime? He continues, quote, the question presses because, as it turns out, the incumbent president actually is what the media Democrat complex falsely claimed the prior president was, a clandestine agent of a hostile foreign power, indeed America's greatest geopolitical foe, by whom it is convincingly argued we are already confronted in a second Cold War." End quote. McCarthy's news hook is what he calls the additional evidence unearthed by the House Oversight Committee under the direction of Chairman James Comer. Most recently, this involves a revelation about a $40,000 payment from brother Jim Biden directly to Joe Biden, using funds that the committee's ongoing investigation reveals originated with CEFC, the Chinese communist regime's so-called private business entity that the Bidens were doing business with. Abiding by the adage that it's better late than never, Politico got into the game yesterday morning with a piece entitled, Fresh Revelations Contradict Joe Biden's Sweeping Denials on Hunter. The piece goes into many of the lies the White House has told about Biden and his relationship to his son's business and includes this, quote, a Politico review of recent congressional testimony and exhibits, along with court filings and media reports, cast doubt on several statements made by Biden and his representatives. They include the president's claim that he has never discussed his relatives' business dealings with anyone, and his suggestion that the appearance of emails apparently belonging to his son was the result of a Russian plot, as well as Biden's denials that his son made money from China and his relatives have profited off of the Biden name." End quote. Now let's talk about 2024. 
On Sunday, yesterday, the New York Times published results of new polls in key battleground states, and the results were not good for the White House. Former President Donald Trump leads incumbent Democrat Joe Biden in five of the six critical battleground states surveyed. The polls reveal two fundamental weaknesses for Biden, his age and massive dissatisfaction over his handling of the economy. Survey respondents were registered voters in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The surveys were fielded from October 22 to November 3. In Arizona, Trump led by 49 to 44 percent. In Georgia, Trump led by 49 to 43 percent. In Michigan, Trump led by 48 to 43 percent. In Nevada, Trump led by 52 to 41 percent. In Pennsylvania, Trump led by 48 to 44 percent. In Wisconsin, Biden led by 47 to 45 percent, well inside the survey's margin of error. Quoting from the piece that, is, that went along with the poll, quote, Voters under 30 favor Mr. Biden by only a single percentage point. His lead among Hispanic voters is down to single digits, and his advantage in urban areas is half of Mr. Trump's edge in rural regions. And while women still favored Mr. Biden, men preferred Mr. Trump by twice as large a margin, reversing the gender advantage that had fueled so many Democratic gains in recent years. Black voters, long a bulwark for Democrats and for Mr. Biden, are now registering 22 percent support in these states for Mr. Trump, a level unseen in presidential politics for a Republican in modern times. The article continues, quote, Another ominous sign for Democrats is that voters across all income levels felt that Mr. Biden's policies had hurt them personally, while they credited Mr. Trump's policies for helping them. The results were mirror opposites. Viewers gave Mr. Trump a 17-point advantage for having helped them, and Mr. Biden an 18-point disadvantage for having hurt them. More, quote, Nearly twice as many voters said economic issues would determine their 2024 vote compared with social issues such as abortion or guns. And those economic voters favored Mr. Trump by a landslide, 60 percent to 32 percent. And that's our Washington report for this week.